I marked. Hi, me too. How are you? I'm I'm good. Less traumatized by the events in Russia, Ukraine, although I don't know why, because things seem to still be really bad and continuing to get even worse. And maybe the sad thing is that I've just gotten a little bit used to it. Uh, but I'm not sure whether we're doing emergency podcast number three, or we're just doing a regular podcast. What is it? I think it's maybe emergency podcast two and a half. Um, there were a lot of things that were going on uh, in the middle of the week, and some of them have been resolved, like the potential, or at least they have been close to resolved, like the potential payment default. And some things just kind of seem in this perpetual limbo, but it seemed like a good time to talk about some of the maybe stranger aspects of what went on last week uh, in connection with the Russian attempt to make a couple of bond payments. Okay, so let's call this quasi-emergency podcast. So let's start with the bond payments that were made. I think it was end of business on Wednesday, and there was a lot of excitement in the financial press and in the markets about the prospect of Russia defaulting. And I confess, I thought that there was very little chance that Russia would use its scarce dollar reserves, even though they have a lot of them, much of that pile of dollar reserves is under sanctions. So I had predicted that they would not make the payment. Instead, we saw that Russia both made the payment and that the US Treasury officials allowed for that payment to go through to the bondholders. Mark, what are the implications of this? What, what, what do you read in the tea leaves from what happened end of day Wednesday? Is this big? Is, does this have giant implications for the direction of the crisis? Does this mean that bondholders are going to get paid despite full-fledged war going on? So two things come to mind. One of, one of them I am more certain about than the other. Um, and that is that I find treasury sanctions horrifically confusing. And I'm confident that I will continue to find them horrifically confusing for basically the rest of my my career. So the just take the the fact that payments were received first. There was a license that had been in place for a while that allowed bondholders to receive payments what through the towards the end of May, I think. And that seemed sort of clear, but then there were these other licenses that seemed to 
at least if you read them kind of expansively, seem to prevent the payment intermediaries from processing payments. And it reminded me strangely of the kind of early uncertainty in the Argentina Paripasu litigation about whether the exchange bondholders, the people who had participated in Argentina's earlier restructuring, if they could be held in contempt just for receiving payments from Argentina. And there was this sort of dance and it was never quite clear, but the way it shook out at the beginning is that the, you know, the payment intermediaries were at risk if they processed payments, they could be held in contempt, but the bondholders wouldn't be in contempt for just receiving them. And it was this weird kind of echo of that situation where, um, you know, if the money showed up, it would be fine, but it wasn't clear that anybody would process the payments. And so I was a little surprised, I guess, that Treasury was so willing to allow the payments to be processed. And I was a little surprised, like you, that the Russians tried to make the payments. And I guess... I view both of those, now, now we're really outside my expertise, but I guess I view, view both of those as kind of positive signs that the people are not escalating the crisis unnecessarily and that there is still some hope of a resolution. Um, I don't know, but that, that's my, my two cents take. I, I confess I, I also have that somewhat optimistic interpretation, but uh, let me throw out something for you and, and see how it sounds. So one interpretation is, despite the pronouncements of people in the State Department that uh, we are going full bore in terms of uh, sanctioning and disciplining the misbehaving Russians, that in the background, peace talks are happening, and that uh, Putin and his senior advisors are planning for Russia to come back to international society, uh, and particularly the international markets. And so they want to try to keep the peace with the markets at least. So if that is the case, then it shouldn't be surprising that they've made the payments. But there's another interpretation that I just want to throw out. And you know the history of these markets well, and you followed the situation in Venezuela well. And so this is a, a story that I heard from a Venezuelan insider some years ago when we were puzzling about why payments were being made on certain Venezuelan bonds, even though Venezuela clearly did not have the resources to pay these debt, debts, in particular in comparison to the needs of their people. The situation had gotten so bad. Remember Ricardo Hausman was talking about the bond payments as, as the hunger bonds because people were going hungry because foreign creditors were getting paid. Anyway, long-winded way of saying, history tells us that there are people who are going to make a lot of money when surprises happen in the market. 
And then to the extent you can generate large surprises, you can make large amounts of money. And so here's the quote I have from that Venezuelan insider. He said, this is a very rational business. Just look at which bonds the generals have large positions in, and then you know which ones will get paid and when the default will occur. Reactions? Well, that is the other and a much less optimistic take. And I was thinking about the Venezuelan context too. So I'm, I'm glad that you bring that up. You know, it, if one thought that the identity of the bondholders was known to, you know, for instance, to Treasury, as I suspect it is not. Um, you know, maybe you could read the tea leaves a little bit further. But yeah, we ha we have these two possibilities, where um, you know, I think roughly speaking, each is probably uh, about uh, equally probable would be my guess. But, you know, I'm sitting here in my armchair uh, without much uh, direct information. So who knows? All, all we know is that for now, at least, the payment was uh, was made. Okay, so now I, I want to push further on the payment being made to a point that you had made to me before, but I didn't really fully comprehend so maybe you can explicate this a little bit better. Uh, I, have, I have parroted the point that you made uh, because it was beautifully made on a couple of occasions, but uh, you, you really are the one who understands it. So the point that you made multiple days ago to me was a point with respect to priority of claims. Now, there are a bunch of claimants against Russia based on its misbehavior. There are potentially uh, tort claimants or tort-esque claimants, all the people who have had their property destroyed, as a result of the Russian invasion, there is the Ukrainian government that has massive claims against Russia. There are all of the refugees. And then there are the people who had property expropriated by Russia over the years who have been toiling in the courts and in arbitral forums Against Russia, we had Paul Stephen come and talk on our podcast about the UCOS-related claims, almost $60 billion worth of claims that against Russia that had no prospect of getting paid, at, at least at the point at which Paul came to talk to us. And then we have the bondholders. And you had made the point and I'm asking you to make this point again so that it's clear that somehow maybe we should view the bondholders somewhat differently than all of these other people who have either been directly injured or had stuff stolen from them by the Russian state. Yeah, I mean, and I think we were most recently talking about this on the Odd Lots 
podcast. But the the thing that's interesting to me, I think, is that if you look at the range of creditors the of the Russian government and you laid them all out quite nicely and we can add more groups to it. You know, there are now Americans who have been killed in Ukraine by Russian bombs. There may be American companies whose Russian assets are expropriated by the Russians as a result of the the conflict. Uh, there are these humanitarian and human rights claimants. I think the the interesting and somewhat puzzling point for me is that if you look historically and you ask yourself, you can frame it as a question of priority, or you can frame it as a question uh, more along the following lines. All of these people will go at some point to their home government and they will say, we, we need your help. The Russians won't pay us. And this is a particularly opportune time to do that because you have the sanctions regime that works to freeze all kinds of uh, assets of the Russian government and of people affiliated with it. And those assets are potentially available to satisfy the claims of all of these creditors. And historically, there are lots of analogies to to this scenario, uh, although the maybe the most relevant historical analogies are from the era of gunboat diplomacy, when you know rich countries would actually go to the the debtor state and they would they would either confiscate assets there or they would impose some kind of deal, but. In all of these settlements, the people, at least my understanding of the history, is the people who were last in line as a matter of priority, the people who were least important to their own government when going and and, um, arranging for payment, were financial creditors. Certainly, expropriation claimants were much more important to the rich countries when they went around and used gunboat diplomacy to get their their citizens paid. And and nothing has changed about that, I don't think, in the modern era. So the, the initial question is sort of who comes first if there is a, a chance to recover against these assets? And then now, I think after last week, the question is, why is the US government allowing Russia to use foreign exchange to pay the group of creditors who historically would be absolute dead last in the queue. And what does that that say about this strange inversion of the priority scheme we would expect? I would think it would be maybe humanitarian claimants, then expropriation claimants, then bondholders. And we're seeing the opposite. So let let me... um... This is really interesting. The history part is really interesting. And uh, until you reminded me, and I know in the context of uh, your work on the history of arbitration clauses and gunboat diplomacy, this is something that you uh, dug into. Is is one of the big cases, just to jolt my memory, the, the sort of the Venezuelan uh, situation where a bunch of countries... Uh, went in and took over Venezuela, or at least the Venezuelan ports, and then there was a resolution of all of the claims uh, against Venezuela. And uh, is is that the key historical event that we're thinking about? 
That's definitely one of the primary ones where you had the 1902-1903 blockade of Venezuelan ports. And, you know, there's a, there's a big literature, which I know that you know well, about the extent to which gunboat diplomacy was used and the extent to which financial markets saw that as a tool for enforcing bond claims. And I think the important thing to, to keep in mind, at least as I understand that history and the literature, is that the these interventions may have helped bondholders. And there's evidence that that financial markets priced the the potential uh, for this kind of enforcement. But they were first and foremost, I think, driven by the fact that a bunch of people had been expropriated, including in this example we're talking about, including um, uh, property owners from Germany and Italy and other places uh, who had uh, been operating in Venezuela. And I know that at least if you look at the legal literature, the understanding throughout most of the 20th century was that, look, if you're a creditor of a foreign state, especially in the era of absolute immunity, your only chance really uh, to get your claim enforced is to go to your own government and get them to intervene on your behalf. And the understanding was always that people who had real property rights as opposed to financial claims, they were in the best position to do that. And in fact, that was one of the kind of standard legal explanations for why it was good if you, as a bondholder, benefited from a pledge of assets, you know, customs duties and so forth, because that made you kind of like uh, an expropriation claimant if, if uh, the country wound up reneging on that promise. This, this, is, this is fascinating, and I, I haven't seen any discussion of uh, this question of using history to figure out how this situation should be worked out. Uh, but after the break, and we really should go to a break now so that we don't go uh, over our allotted amount of time like we have on a couple of prior uh, occasions. Uh, after the break, I, I want to ask you about the relative moral claims if you may, uh, of the different sets of claimants and whether that should play a role because some of these claimants, including some of the bondholders who invested in Putin's regime, seem, shall we say, a bit odious to me. But let's go to a break now. So, Mark, you and I have written most recently in the context of Haiti with our good friends, Ugo Panitza and Kim Oosterlink about odious debt. And I'm wondering whether those concepts apply in this current case, at least in, think, in terms of thinking about bondholders vis-a-vis say, humanitarian claimants against Russia? Yeah, I mean, so I think you and I, I think I can speak for you in calling you a bit of a skeptic about 
odious debt as a legal doctrine, and that's certainly true of me as well. And certainly this would be a weird case of of odious debt because kind of canonically that's a scenario where you have borrowing by a despotic regime, Putin, and and I'm willing to concede that we have that here, but then the money is used to oppress the despot's own population. And of course, here we've got a scenario where the money that was lent by financial creditors over the last few years is, who knows what it has been used for, but um, right now we're seeing the, the consequences for Ukraine. So it's maybe not a classic type of odious debt situation, but I think the point you're getting at is one you and I had written about in a blog post last week, which is that the more recent bond creditors invested knowing full well that Putin had done all kinds of stuff that was bad from the perspective of Western governments, and I think uh, sort of objectively bad, had gotten sanctioned for it and, and might get sanctioned in the future, and they lent money anyway. And so in that context, it is really sort of extraordinary to think that this group of bond creditors might be allowed to get paid when you have a much more sympathetic set of creditors uh, that's really quite broad, ranging from the humanitarian claimants to the expropriation creditors. So it's quite, it's, this is an unusual situation where the more recent set of bondholders in particular had every reason to understand that they were lending to a really, really problematic regime and that there might be another wave of sanctions coming down the road that would uh, impact the, the Russian government's ability to pay. So am I correct in understanding? So this the, the lending to Putin seems, I mean, this seems to, fi- to nicely fit the definition of odious, And again, to bring back the Venezuelan case, when there were those hunger bonds that Ricardo Hausmann so nicely named, uh, the markets did penalize Goldman Sachs for uh, making that special deal and giving the Maduro government uh, financing, the recent sets of bondholders, many of whom tout their ESG credentials all over the place seem pretty odious. And am I correct in, if I break down what happened last week on Wednesday, uh, the US Treasury Department in allowing frozen funds to go to those bondholders is in effect uh, giving priority to the most odious of these claimants? Can I boil it down that way? Yeah, I mean, this is what you and I have been talking about uh, kind of outside of of this podcast. And I think I'm not sure what the right way is to look at it, but that is definitely one of the ways to understand what happened. I mean, I guess the question to ask is, so bondholders had existing contract rights and the Russian government, so far as it appears, had intended to honor those rights. And so uh, 
I guess I would be curious about what the U.S. government is going to do for similarly situated trade creditors, uh, for instance. Um, it's actually, it's not just that the the odious bonds are being paid when humanitarian claims are not. It's that you've got a wide range of commercial claims against the Russian government, and many of them are frozen. You can't deal with your Russian counterparties anymore unless you happen to be holding uh, uh, this one type of contract, these bond contracts. And I, and I do agree with you that many of them are, if not odious, then at least pretty disgusting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I am. I have been particularly focused on the large number of people who have been displaced, the refugees who now have to be resettled in other countries. And in the conversations about refugees, particularly in the European context, this, this is a real cost that the countries who have to do the resettling have to bear. And where, while I'm optimistic that the Ukrainian refugees will get a much more sympathetic, sympathetic uh, welcome than refugees from uh, Myanmar yep. or Syria, uh, still money has to be spent and money has to be spent in the context of there being scarce resources in the wake of COVID. So if you unfreeze the money to pay bondholders, there is necessarily less money to pay uh, these kinds of costs. So it, it really does seem upside down. And I, I just, I, I wonder whether the folks at the US Treasury in the US administration have really been thinking about this or some like low level flunky is making decisions on the fly and money's just going out the door. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I think to be fair to them, they have kind of blunt tools at the moment for dealing with this, right? You can either keep assets frozen or you can allow them to, to be paid. In terms of using them to compensate other kinds of claimants, it's not like you have people with recognized court judgments or arbitration awards who are coming and saying, we have a, a legal right to attach those assets. That would be um, kind of an, an easy scenario in which you know, the money could be used to satisfy these kinds of claims. I think if we asked folks in Treasury, they would say right now, like, we can't it is an entirely different question legally, whether we have the power to just expropriate a bunch of Russian assets and distribute them to the claimants that we view as most uh, most worthy. That's not something that we're in the business of doing, and it's certainly not something we're in the business of doing right now. If you've got a contractually specified payment and you want to make it, we can say yes or no. That's a, a much simpler decision and a much more uh, uh, easy decision to justify in terms of the legality. Just one last question, and then I think we should probably talk in the remaining few minutes about the question of state succession and war debts, which is also quite important right now. But isn't what happened in the context of the Afghan central bank assets essentially the U.S. government deciding that 
we're going to privilege one set of humanitarian claimants over sort of the normal course of things. And we're going to fundamentally change the background understandings of customary international law uh, because we think this subset of claimants is particularly worthy. Aren't these the same institutions that just recently made this kind of decision? Yeah, I, this is the, you're exactly right. Uh, I don't, I have to imagine that a decision like that is the product of some fairly extensive deliberation and debate, and that very few people in Treasury are enthusiastic about doing that over and over again, even when circumstances seem uh, seem to justify it. But this is uh, exactly the right example. You know, it's all of these uh, concerns about legality and desire to conform to what customary international law would require. They all matter until they don't. And it seemed like they didn't matter a whole lot uh, in connection with the Afghan central bank assets. But, but let's, let's shift gears because you're right, we don't wanna take too much time. And I do wanna ask you about the state succession kinds of questions, since um, you know much, much more about those issues than I do. And it's looking just from the news this morning that the Russians are making uh, some relatively significant gains in terms of perhaps um, capturing more territory in the South. I'm wondering if maybe a nice example to start with would be to just have you kind of help me understand what happens to the Ukrainian debt if at the end of all of this conflict, a significant portion of what was formerly Ukrainian territory is now either an independent republic, independent in scare quotes there, aligned with Russia, or perhaps even just part of Russia itself. So this is what you're referring to is what is called the law of state succession. And it's very easy to know what the law of state succession is uh, because it, it is so old and there's so little of it. And it, it is largely unhindered by any real theoretical underpinnings. So broadly speaking, the law of state succession is that if you take over a country, you take over the benefits of owning that country and therefore, you, you have to pay for uh, the costs, which, are the, which include the debt claims uh, against that country. So the prior owner uh, built a dam and borrowed money in order to build this dam. And you just went in with your armies and took it over. And now you have the dam. And so you should pay the, the debt holders of the dam. Now, that's, that's very simplistic. But I don't think that international law of state succession tells us at what point of taking over portions of another country do the debt claims switch and it doesn't provide much clarity on you know what happens if you take over uh, kick out the elected government and put in place your puppet 
does that does the puppet now have the debt claims or do you have the debt claims in some ways uh, the us is perhaps partly responsible but also the great powers for not adding clarity to this uh, in part because the us had its own incentives to uh, avoid clarity uh, most recently in the context of iraq the us and its handful of allies took over Iraq, uh, ran that country, but they didn't want to take over the debts of Iraq. Uh, that, that they were very clear that would have been a huge political liability. So there, there was this sort of theoretical, the theoretical government was the local government when in actuality, complete control was uh, with the US. So there is a law. Uh, if you take it, it's yours. But in practice, it's uh, very, very murky. And I mean, maybe this is the good occasion because the existing law sets up really bad incentives. And let me uh, get to the really bad incentives that we are dealing with here. And those have to do with the subset of the law of state succession, which is a body of law known as war debts. And, and I'm now digging out from my memory very, very old precedents, such as the Boer War in the early 1800s. Actually, no, not the Boer War in the early 1800s. It, it's uh, the US takeover of Texas. I think that was maybe 1845. Um, then uh, 1898, the U.S. takeover of Cuba. Uh, that, that you can add to that uh, the British uh, in the Boer War, and all of these precedents from the colonial era. So therefore, they are legal precedents written by the victors. Seem to suggest that if you're taking over a country and the country is raising money or the, the way the victors usually characterize it is the rebels are raising money in order to fight the rebellion. And that is certainly how Putin views uh, Ukraine. Then the victor does not have to pay the debts, the rebellious debts. Now, Ukraine is desperately trying to raise funds today in order to fight the Russians. It needs the funds, it's trying to raise it there, and there's a lot of sympathy, but those investors probably should be worried that they will be at the bottom of the priority scheme. And, and that strikes me as a very bad set of incentives that this very antiquated body of law sets up. I'm sorry, I, I, I went on too long, but was that um, sort of setting up things the right way? It is, and it's really helpful, but I, I, I wonder if you can clarify one point. I, I think I could take a crack at clarifying it, but you know so much more uh, that I think it would benefit uh, listeners for you to do it. And I suspect some some listeners are asking, what the hell are you going on about international law for? I'm, I'm, I'm holding my bond now. Of course, we know they're not doing that. Nobody 
bothers to read uh, the instruments, but you know, I'm looking at my bond now and it says English law and you're prattling on about international law. I don't understand. I go to an English court and you know, I say like, look, I contracted with an entity. The entity was Ukraine. That entity still exists. Sure, it's a bit smaller. Um, I'm not, I'm, you know, I get to enforce that. I get to enforce it against Ukraine. And, oh, maybe Russia too. That'd be great. But uh, there's still a Ukraine. It still owes my debt. And and what does international law have to do with any of this? Okay, this this is a really difficult question. And we I should make clear to to everybody that I am not an international law specialist and uh, I'm actually mostly a specialist in criticizing uh, my international law colleagues for how little clarity and coherence there is for the body of law that they work in, but now I'm stuck mired in it. So the, the difficult question that you're asking is what law governs if you specify that your contract is under English law? And you go into court as, you know, there is a dispute that we've talked about, I think, earlier on prior podcast episodes between Ukrainian Ukraine and Russia that is in a domestic court in England from the prior incursion into Crimea. And the UK courts or the English courts, more specifically, have really struggled with the question of what law applies in an English court? Now, I would think if a state is litigating in an English court, you would look to international law because international law, specifically public international law, is the law that governs states. So it, it doesn't matter what court you're in, uh, that is a relevant body of background law that gets uh, brought in. But the court, uh, did see, does seem to struggle with it in the few disputes that we've had. And I think the last thing we heard from the English courts, although the, these matters are still before the, the, the Supreme Court there, is that maybe international law is less relevant and instead it is the pronouncements of the British Foreign Office regarding international law that are more important. So, okay, I'm gonna have to disclaim expertise here. Do you remember what what, what the state of things were there in a domestic court thinking about states? So, so I, I don't remember with real precision, but what I do recall is that so far in that litigation, Ukraine's best successes have come in arguing that the the loan itself was the product of duress and what i what i'm fairly certain the courts have done thus far is to say that as a matter of english law what it means to act improperly and to impose duress on someone in this context is taken from international law, which I think I think is, I don't remember how one proves international law and if the sort of statements of the foreign office get special weight or anything like that. But I think that that's consistent with what you're saying, which is that even in a, a uh, English law governed contract, at least when the dispute is between uh, a state 
And in that context, uh, the trustee for the bonds, English law will sometimes point in the direction of international law to, to supply answers to some of these questions. So, Mark, we're getting close to our end of time, but I, I want to push a little further on this question of the war debts. Best I can see it, the significant risk for investors funding Ukraine's rebellion is that they will be at the bottom of the priority scheme if there is an eventual resolution, as there surely has to be, although remembering the 1917-1918 debts uh, of the Tsarist regime where there has still been no uh, resolution uh, does make me pause that any claimants will get anything. Uh, but we are seeing some bondholders getting paid right now. So is that set in stone that those who fund the Ukrainian regime will get paid last or, or not at all get paid? Or is there room for this body of law to get changed if uh, the Western governments who influence international law all the time, uh, if the State Department uh, has its international law specialists say, uh, you know, uh, that th that set of priorities is from the colonial era. We no longer support that. And if uh, the UK government says the same thing and Western European governments say the same thing, I mean, the law could change if there was some substantial thought put to it, right? I think so. I see no reason why not, given how few the precedents are and how old they are and how at least as I understand it, the customary international law here is supposed to reflect state practice, which can change. And, and certainly we may be in a position where we're seeing uh, grounds for a change. There hasn't been a whole lot of recent state practice. And I would think that the fact that the examples we do have are so old and from some, such a different context would um, would leave some room for adopting a, a different rule here. Now, I have to say, I'm, I'm assuming the odds that this question would come up are relatively low and that in reality, assuming there remains a... a um, Ukraine to assert claims against. In reality, this um, we're unlikely to see litigation over this issue. But you, maybe I'm maybe I'm being too too dismissive of that possibility. I don't know. Maybe that you can you can tell me whether I'm I'm being too dismissive uh, as a a way of wrapping up the the episode today. I don't think you're being too dismissive. I think you're being realistic in that what what will probably happen in the end is that there will be a political compromise and a fund will be created and uh, claimants, the humanitarian claimants and a bunch of the other claimants who don't have the clearest uh, rights will have to get portions of whatever's left in the fund. And I, sad to say, I think the bondholders, because they have the clearest, more, most immediate claims and have uh, very good lobbyists will get paid first. And then there's also the reality that everybody understands, which is that 
Ukraine will need to borrow whatever is left of Ukraine will need to borrow again on the international markets uh, to fund its recovery. I mean, it's, it is staggering to think about the cost that has been incurred by them as a result of this war. I mean, so I, I think you're right to predict that we won't have clarity. But that said, law is supposed to be set up in a way that we have clear rules ahead of time. And this is, this is an important body of law as we are realizing important in terms of setting up the right incentives. And it's very distressing to me at least that nobody has bothered to provide clarity because there's just too much self-interest at hand whenever we have these kinds of situations. Well, me too. Maybe we should wrap it up for the the episode. I think it's almost certain that we'll have all kinds of uh, important and interesting stuff to talk about in the coming weeks. But hopefully we get uh, a spate of good news, perhaps, for a while. I am hoping for good news. I, I started this session out on the optimistic note that uh, maybe peace uh, is uh, coming. And now when I think about what is being done, uh, I'm, de- I'm dejected. But I, I am often unduly pessimistic. So I hope that I am being unduly pessimistic and we have good news soon. But let's close it. Mm-hmm.